Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. In our last session, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. And this leads us to this moment that takes place in the Gospel of Luke, where Peter and Jesus are both on trial. We're going to pick up in chapter 22, verse 54. They've seized Jesus. They've taken him into the house of the high priest, and Peter follows at a distance. We learn in John's gospel that Peter is with John, and John, as the beloved disciple, but also related into the priestly family, is able to gain them access into the courtyard of this particular compound. In this compound, Peter and John are interacting with various servants and various people in the courtyard, and Jesus is on trial before the high priest and other leaders. It's interesting to me that in this interaction, Peter ultimately will deny Jesus three times. And we see this interaction of denial played out and fleshed out a little bit more in the other gospels. Luke summarizes it a bit more. But as G- as Peter comes to this place where he denies Jesus and the rooster crows, notice verse 61. The Lord looked, turned and looked at Peter. This verse has always haunted me. That it, sometimes it's in our weakest moments, in our moments of betrayal and denial, in our moments of sin, in our moments of distancing ourselves from Jesus, even though in our heart of hearts we want to draw near to Jesus and follow him and be faithful and loyal to him. Jesus still sees. And I don't know exactly how this happened. If Jesus was being transferred from one location to the other, if Jesus is by a nearby window and able to look out into the courtyard, but but Jesus turns and looks. You can actually trace uh, this phrase, Jesus turning and looking, and recognize how significant that is in the Gospels. And when he looks at Peter, Peter remembered what he had said. And notice Peter's response. He went out and he wept bitterly. Peter's on trial just as much as Jesus in this particular moment. And what I want you to see is that uh, the book of Luke is a two-part series. And in the book of Acts, after the resurrection, Peter has the opportunity to once again be on trial. And in the book of Acts, Peter's actually on trial in that instance, in front of the very people that Jesus is in trial in front of at this moment, Acts chapter four. Peter's not on trial in front of servants in that scene. Peter's on trial in front of the high priest and the leaders themselves. And it's in that scene in Acts that we find Peter using the phrase, the name of Jesus. Now, he doesn't use it three times. I don't want to overstate the case. But notice Peter's not going to make the same mistake twice of of denying Christ. And so he's going to learn from this particular moment. He's, He's going to grow and his faith is going to be transformed through the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, as well as the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's why Peter, an unschooled ordinary man, will look quite different by the time we get to part two in the book of Acts. So imagine this particular moment, both from the eyes of Jesus, as one of his loyal followers, one of his disciples, denies that he even knows him, but also on the part of Peter who recognizes what he has just done. I think in many ways, this story accentuates not only the depth of our own sin um, and, and, you know, in some ways the, the betrayal, the denial of our own sin or the, the darkness of our own sin, but also the, the woundedness of Christ and his willingness uh, to go to the cross for us in the midst of this messy situation. Jesus will go from here and we'll notice that he's going to be mocked 
Um, this is going to happen. If you take the four gospels and put them side by side, you recognize that in many ways, this looks like what we see in, in kind of TV movies or even in um, you know some of the unfortunate uh, news stories we often hear from uh, scenes of war or at times um, people groups who are in hostility against each other. This looks like an interrogation. Um, in some ways, it, it looks like um, you know the the kind of uh, abuse that would take place um, caused by racism or caused by factions uh, that war brings. Jesus is going to be mocked. He's going to be beaten. Later on, he's going to be flogged by the Romans, and they're going to mock him as a, a false prophet. They're going to mock, mock him as a false king. Everything about his identity, they're going to mock. In this particular moment, they they blindfold him and they mock him as a prophet. Who struck you? And they're going to blaspheme. They're going to slander him, say all kinds of things against him. Then we have overnight this, I'm going to call it a pre-trial. They're going to try to bring up some charges that are going to stick before the Roman governor. And so there's really two phases of this trial. One is a Jewish phase and the other is a Roman phase. And again, other gospels have various attributes of this, this trial. But as Jesus is before the council, you'll recognize that there's one indictment that it's against Jesus that's more theological. Like, are you God's son? And then they'll say, what further testimony do we need? But then when they come before Pilate, they bring charges of Jesus being someone who um, is misleading the nation and is opposed to Caesar and is claiming to be a king. And Pilate will ask, are you a king? So notice that the reason they want Jesus dead is a little bit different, quite a bit different than the actual charges they bring before Pilate. Politically, the the court case before Pilate is interesting because Pilate finds himself in in a, kind of a, a bit of a pickle. He's in a kind of unique spot. Uh, and I don't want to uh, diminish Pilate's role and culpability in Jesus's crucifixion, uh, but I do want to recognize that Pilate, just like some of the Jewish leaders that we've already seen, uh, Pilate makes his decisions to crucify Jesus based on his desire to preserve his own power and position. Uh, Pilate, as far as we know, um, has connections to a Roman leader named Sejanus. That's his benefactor back in Rome. And Sejanus has actually already gotten in trouble for trying to, what looks like a coup uh, to the emperor, trying to, to take the emperor's role in Rome. And he's actually already been executed. And if we chronologically try to reconstruct the timeline here, there may actually be a, a bit of a target on Pilate's back back in Rome because of his connection to Sejanus. So Pilate may already be feeling a little bit shaky in his political role as governor over this, this region that, um, that he's ruling over. So at some level then, when the leaders are saying, hey, you're no friend of Caesar's, if you, don't, if you let this man go, if you don't crucify him. Pilate may actually find himself in kind of a political hot seat to where it's either his role or crucifying this man that he probably doesn't care about a whole lot, but he knows is innocent. And he chooses to crucify this man that he knows is innocent because of his own desire to preserve his position and his power. So it's at this particular point in time, then, as we come to chapter 23, that you notice the indictment. Jesus looks like a rebel. He looks like a terrorist. He's from Galilee. Well, Pilate picks up on this fact. Oh, wait, he's a Galilean? He's not from my jurisdiction? Well, then he's under Herod's jurisdiction. This would be the heir to Herod the Great. And so Pilate calls him in. Why is he in town? Well, because it's Passover. And so everyone who is anyone is going to be here for this particular moment. 
Both of them, by the way, probably had processions, parades that led them into town as the legitimate ruler of the people of Israel, Herod being up north and on the other side of the Jordan River, and Pilate being over this region in Judea, the political epicenter of Jerusalem. So imagine both of them having parades into town and then Jesus riding in on a donkey, and Jesus as the legitimate ruler compared to both of these rulers who are also in town. But Herod is uh, the, the one who has jurisdiction over Galilee, and so Pilate sees an out. He sees an opportunity, and he seizes it. He sends Jesus before Herod, but both of them actually agree that Jesus has done nothing wrong, that nothing is deserving of death. And it's this scene where Herod and Pilate, verse 12, become friends. Probably more by that phrase, we should read political allies, uh, more than we read friends in some of the modern ways that we think about that word. This word would have been used in many ways in the context of um, those who are political uh, aligning with one another. And it's at this point that we then have both Herod and Pilate saying, this man has done nothing deserving death. Uh, Pilate says in verse 16, um, I will therefore punish him. Why? Well, because he caused problems and I'll release him. But then they all together um, cry out that they want Barabbas to be released and Jesus to be crucified. And they yell out, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus says, what is it? Or Pilate says, what has he done? But notice again, there's this political pressure that's there. So Pilate eventually gives in to their demand. And again, you have to weave in the other gospel accounts to recognize some of the dynamics of why this is taking place. And eventually we recognize that Pilate releases Barabbas. Now, interesting thing about this, this guy named Barabbas, now his name uh, Bar is the, the connotation of son and Abba, son of the father. It's interesting. The son of the father is let go so that the son of the father could take his place. Barabbas's story in kind of a weird way, Barabbas is guilty, deserving of death, is let go. He's freed. It's this, it's this story of atonement where Jesus takes our place. It's the same thing that happens with Lazarus, by the way, in the gospel of John, Lazarus was dead. Jesus comes, raises him from the dead. But because of that story, everyone wanted to put Jesus to death in Jerusalem because he had done that. So Lazarus gets life and Jesus gets death. Well, here the same thing, the son of the father gets set free and the son of the father, the son of God is crucified in his place. And so Barabbas, not only in this story, but in the other gospel accounts becomes this interesting image of this bigger picture of all that's taking place. And so Pilate releases him. Again, there's more details in the other gospel accounts, but he delivers Jesus over to notice not, not his will, but their will. Pilate relents so that he can maintain his own position and power. So I don't want to let Pilate off, off the hot seat. He does not carry out justice, which is his role in Rome, but also his role under God's reign as a leader. And God will ultimately hold Pilate and others like him accountable. So then we have Jesus who's being led outside of the city. As Jesus is led outside of the city, uh, we find then that there's this man who is there. He's probably traveling. He's traveling for the Passover feast. His name is Simon. Interestingly enough, I don't want to make too much of this. Where is Simon Peter? Well, he denied Jesus and wept and is hiding. 
And now there's this other man named Simon. It's just interesting, the names. Son of the father, who is set free. And this man named Simon, while there should be another Simon who's right by Jesus' side, is just kind of the stranger passing by. And and they take the cross and they conscripted him. This was something that would be done oftentimes with Jewish leaders or Roman uh, soldiers, for instance, where they would actually have a, a legal right to have someone carry luggage or to take something from them. You kind of see this in you know modern day movies where a police officer takes a car and goes on a car chase. Well, in this instance, they conscript Simon of Cyrene to take the cross and carry it for Jesus probably because he's so weakened by the flogging that has also taken place that we find in the other gospel narratives. So Jesus is now on this parade route. People are waking up, hearing the news that this is taking place, and they're starting to crowd out into the narrow walkways of the city, and they're lamenting. They're crying out for Jesus. But Jesus, like he's done all week, actually says, no, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Because after all, and then he gives this indictment and this warning that seems to cover not only 70 AD, but also likely then becomes a picture for the ultimate reality of the decreation of creation, the judgment of all of creation because of our sin. The ultimate sin, the denial of the coronated king, God's son, who came to save us. Then as we come to verse 32, we have two criminals. It's interesting. Two criminals are led there with Jesus. They're placed at his right and left. I don't know. Don't want to make too much of it. But what did James and John as disciples want with Jesus when he entered into his kingdom? They wanted to be at his right and left. They're nowhere to be found. They're hiding. And yet it's these two criminals, these two outsiders who are given a position of, I don't know if it's honor. It's kind of more dishonor. But as Jesus rearranges the chairs of the kingdom, they're given these, these places to observe and watch Jesus. And one of them sees Jesus and recognizes something about him. Maybe it's the inscription above his head. This is the king of the Jews. And maybe it's the mocking of others. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Well, we know this, that Jesus is not going to save himself. Because what have we said? He came to seek and save that which was lost, this mission. And so this thief recognizes something about Jesus and he cries out to Jesus. You've done nothing wrong or he's not done nothing wrong, but Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, remember what I said going back a couple sessions ago about the resurrection, that Jesus doesn't always give us all the details we want to know about the resurrection. You know, he's not systematic in his theology about the resurrection, but he does give us some indication that this man, when he dies that day, would exist with Jesus in some state of paradise, like the Garden of Eden existence or dwelling with God. And so there's some indication of this. Um, likely it's to await the physical resurrection that would come someday. Now we could, you know, get into the details as well. Of, is this man under the old covenant or new covenant? It doesn't matter. Jesus is the king. He can make this declaration based upon this man's faith, like Abraham, by the way, who wasn't circumcised before he believed, but after he believed, like the book of Hebrews tells us. So by faith, this man can be saved. And in this particular moment, we have this picture of Jesus 
carrying out that mission, he came to seek and save that, that which was lost. If Jesus can save a thief in that final hour who has done nothing to deserve salvation, um, you don't deserve it anymore. But he also then has the power to save you and bring you from death to life. So we have all of these pictures that now line up. And it brings us to verse 44, where we come to noon, the sixth hour of the day, and darkness comes over all of the land to the ninth hour. Again, this prophetic symbol of judgment as the sun's light fails. It's this judgment over all of the land, and the curtain of the temple is torn open. Again, this sign of judgment, like the cleansing of the temple, this sign of judgment. And Jesus cries out in a loud voice and says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then he breathes his last. Now, you also know this, the, the curtain of the temple being torn in two then also becomes a symbol, not only of the destruction of the temple, but of access through the resurrection and through the crucifixion of Jesus that we have into the, the presence of God. And so there's kind of a double symbolism of, of this moment. And then we have this declaration, and I want you to kind of see this, and we'll kind of close with this dynamic as we get to Jesus's burial. We're now going to have three unlikely people witnessing the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, in addition to, by the way, the two thieves and Barabbas. Uh, we're going to have multiple uh, eyewitnesses that are unlikely eyewitnesses. They're the people you wouldn't sit at the table, but they're people who Jesus sits at the table. The first one's the centurion. Notice centurions have prominent places in Jesus's ministry, as well as in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10, the first Gentile convert is centurion. So here we have a centurion, and he's going to be the one who actually praises God and declares this man what Pilate and Herod should have declared him, innocent. This man's going to see something about Jesus, and he's going to declare him innocent, and he's going to praise God. We have a confession of this centurion. Surely this man was a son of God in the other gospels. Uh, maybe it is the son of God or son of God. Either way, we have something recognized about Jesus's death and the way that he died by the centurion man who's standing here at the cross. The crowd is also there and they start to turn home and they're lamenting, they're weeping all that has taken place, probably the injustice and the, the gore and the ugliness of all of this moment. But there's also acquaintances and women who are standing off in the distance, and they're watching these things. And then two men draw near. One is Joseph of Arimathea. John's gospel also says Nicodemus comes with him. And we discover that Joseph of Arimathea was also one of the members of the Sanhedrin, the council, but he actually didn't consent to that action. So apparently not all 70 or 72 were on board with this. This was probably pushed through rather quickly. So instead, he goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. Here's another eyewitness. John says that he and Nicodemus were secret disciples. They're unlikely. They're leaders of the people who did not relent. But I don't know about you, but this seems a little bit insufficient that they didn't stand up for Jesus. But here, like Peter and like others, we find all of ourselves insufficient as disciples. And they go and they take Jesus's body. And by merely associating with Jesus they probably find themselves culpable, um, a target associating with this rabbi who apparently seems to have failed. And they take Jesus's body and that night they prepare it and they lay him in this empty tomb as Sabbath is getting ready to begin. 
And the women, by the way, noticed where Jesus was laid, and they intended to return there um, with spices and ointments after the Sabbath day was over. So we have this kind of moment that ends the story and puts a kind of a pause as Friday ends and Saturday begins this evening of the Sabbath. And we have kind of this longing for justice, this longing for things to be made right, this longing for life where there is death, this longing for victory where there is defeat. I mean, notice how far we've come in just a few days. Jesus riding in victoriously on a donkey, coronated as the new king, cleansing the temple, looking like the the King Josiah or the King Hezekiah, looking like the the Maccabeans, looking like, like the victorious king that he is. He's won debates with the Jewish leaders and the Sadducees, the Pharisees. He's uh, overcome these accusations and traps that they've they've levied against him. He's declared a, a signs and uh, words of indictment against the temple and prophecies against the temple and against the city. And now he's dead? Well, that's really where we leave off in this session. Because in many ways, we find ourselves in, in this kind of moment. I know it's a little bit cliche, but we also find ourselves today going, is Jesus really going to return in victory? Is he going to bring life where there is death? Is he going to bring is he going to bring victory where there's defeat? Is he going to bring light where there's darkness? You see, we find ourselves in so many ways, and and there's plenty of preachers who will play on this, but we find ourselves in kind of that Friday night, Saturday moment. And yet what we recognize, and we'll come to next session, is that on the first day of the week, early at dawn, they went to the tomb. And the stone was rolled away. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.